wanted to start with a story. And um, the story is uh, about birthdays. Birthdays in my family were a, uh, a pretty cool tradition. Um, for me and my family, I had two brothers, so it was three boys and mum and dad. Um, and we, there would be anticipation. You'd, uh, you'd be looking forward to your birthday as a little kid, as most little kids do, right? Um, look forward to their birthday. Something exciting was going to happen. Um, it would be quietly enjoyable, and we'd have some nice traditions like we get to choose whatever you eat at night for dinner, you know, things like that. Um, then I met my wife, and birthdays in my wife's family were totally different. Uh, the anticipation was there, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't just like a quiet excitement. It was huge. It was a massive deal. And uh, it was enjoyable, and if you've ever heard my father-in-law sing Happy Birthday, it is a memorable event. He's sitting right here, uh, and he's proud of it. He won't deny it. Um, it, it. It's just a hugely loud, exciting event. And, uh, and I, say, I say both of those. Neither is better. They're just different, and both are really enjoyable. Um, but that sort of has rubbed off on my children. This year, my oldest daughter, Phoebe, um, is someone who anticipates exciting events for what seemed like years um, it's only a couple of weeks, but it seems like years, right? Because she does, she talks about it, she thinks about it, she works out ways to get ready for it, and you can see the anticipation. It's like it eats away at, at her inside. It's like she is just so excited uh, when, when big things happen. Uh, most recently, it was her fifth birthday. The time was coming and had now come. She struggled to go to sleep the night before, and then we were pleasantly enjoying a good night's sleep, and I feel this gentle touch on the side of the bed. Daddy, I can't get back to sleep. And I was thinking, oh, 6 a.m., she's excited. You know, everything will be sweet. Uh, I look over to check the time and no. No, it was not 6 a.m. In fact, it wasn't even 5 a.m. It wasn't even 4 a.m. It was 3.30 a.m. <laughs> she was absolutely pumped because her birthday was here. And uh, what she was hoping for on this birthday... Uh, was, uh, was some pretty big stuff. She, she was hoping that she'd grow taller than her cousin all overnight, like from four to five. She was going to grow taller than her cousin. Um, she was going to be bigger and she was going to get some amazing gift. She was just absolutely psyched about it. Um, we put her back to bed at 3.30. She got back up at 4.30 and there was no turning back from there. Um, so needless to say, it was a big day. Uh, as you think about this Gospel of Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark that we're actually looking at at the moment um, is a book that was written about this good news and the people at the time uh, were in Judea and, and Jerusalem. Uh, this is where the, the whole setting takes place, right at the beginning. And, um, and the people at that time, there'd been a silence for like 300 years. God hadn't spoken through any prophet uh, for between three and four hundred years, so it's like a, it was a real quiet time, um, and and the people were desperately anticipating a saviour uh, because at the time the Romans um, were the people who were governing at the time, and their rule was quite oppressive for minority groups, um, and and that included Christians, that included Jews at the time. Um, Peter elaborated on it last week, but spoke of the evidence. That this gospel account is the earliest account written after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And it's important that you actually understand that because when you have an eyewitness account um, of something, you actually want the eyewitness account to be whatever was the closest to, that, uh, to, the, to the event happening. Um, and so uh, Mark actually writes down uh, what he observed happen, and it was within one generation 
of, uh, of Jesus' life, death, and burial and resurrection. That's significant because uh, that gives evidence that Jesus is actually true. Um, he is actually a man. He did actually walk this earth. And what he says, uh, we better listen to. Uh, and this is the whole flavor of the Gospel of Mark. Mark's a very punchy writer. Um, he says things as they are. He doesn't dilly-dally around with uh, huge details. He just gets the point. Um, and this happens uh, nonetheless with uh, this account either and this point in Mark. Uh, Put yourself in this picture. As a nation, we've been overtaken by another government. Now, this is probably reality for uh, other countries, right? ISIS going around and just taking over whole, whole nations, whole cities. Um, as a nation, we've been overtaken by another government. This government is oppressive and takes away freedoms rather than produces them. Society is breaking down. There are wars, murders, marriage breakdown, family breakdown, selling of assets to international buyers. Uh, we feel like strangers in our own land. Can you imagine yourself in this situation? The government is corrupt. The government is oppressive. And particularly for Christians, uh, they're, they're downtrodden. Um, we've had so much history. There's been so many battles we've engaged in. There seems to be no hope. We've tried to battle against this government and they're always stronger. They always have more weapons. They always gain the upper hand. Not only this, but at times minority groups are squashed and persecuted. The Jews, God's people, as I said before, have been waiting for a prophet as there had been no prophet from God for close to 400 years. They knew that tradition had told them that there would be one who would cry out in the desert preparing the way for the much-awaited Messiah, the Saviour, the person who was going to save them from these oppressive Romans uh, who were taking them down and squashing them and making life uh, like hell for them. Um, they were under the oppression of the Romans, and so their anticipation for this Messiah was heightened. Um, not unlike my daughter Phoebe's on her birthday, right? The anticipation. Can you sense the anticipation of a desperate need of a saviour? Can you imagine what it would be like over in uh, the Middle East where people are being oppressed? People are literally being killed. Christians, in particular, being killed. Can you, uh, can you sense the anticipation of saving? Please, someone, something, come and save us. And this is where we get to in Mark chapter 1. So if you've got your Bible there, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We also learnt last week that the word gospel means good news. And we're going to have a little bit of a look at that today, uh, how this is actually good news for us. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight John appeared see how Mark does that John appeared like it boom there he is he's just there here he is in the desert um, and I did a little bit of looking around and Judea and um, Jerusalem uh, it's in fact the wilderness around that area is the lowest trench land in all the earth there's no point on earth that's lower uh, than this than this land surrounding uh, the wilderness here um, and it still exists today John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate, get this, locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
So if you think, if you have a look at this, the, um, some facts as you get, it, get into the main message of what John has to say. The prophecy. The prophecy was written um, well before any of this ever happened. So the people know that the prophecy has been written. Um, these words in particular, you won't actually find in Isaiah word for word, but what Mark's done, because he's an eyewitness account, uh, he's strung together a whole bunch of um, Old Testament uh, words and put them together into a quote. Which sounds weird to us because we like to quote something and we need to see it quoted word for word. But as an eyewitness, uh, you obviously remember things and you're putting things together. And he wanted to give that credibility and so um, he made it come from Isaiah. Uh, nonetheless, what was happening was true. All right. So this whole point about John coming, this great prophet coming and preaching and getting people ready for a Messiah was true. And this is what uh, Mark was getting to. The wilderness, it's a mixture of history of God's judgment uh, because this same wilderness was where the people of Israel left Egypt and were wandering around for 40 years. Uh, they were grumbling, they were complaining, they, they didn't get what they wanted. Uh, they wanted to go back to Egypt, to slavery, uh, where, where they'd been before. And so there was this element of God's judgment. This is where you're going to wander for 40 years because you can't see me straight. Uh, you can't get the point that I'm going to be your God and you need to trust me. Um, instead... Instead, they wandered around for ages and ages. Uh, but it's also a point of grace because uh, it was also the area of the promised land, right? Uh, and so there's a mixture of God's judgment and God's grace. And now this great exodus that was happening where people were coming back into the wilderness to hear this great message, the great message of, of salvation that, uh, that John was preaching. Second, the herald. Who's this herald? Uh, as you think about introductions, um, I wonder if the best introduction you've ever heard, uh, when you go on to, or when you watch those late shows, um, or I don't know, you go to a big um, event and you hear marvellous introductions, um, you get the sense that uh, this is happening out in the wilderness, right? And it's, a, it's an interesting point because God seems to start all that he does, not all that he does, a lot of what he does in low places, quiet places that no one would expect. Think about when Jesus was born uh, onto the earth. It was a low place. It was a quiet place that nobody expected. He wasn't born into a palace. He's the king of this incredible new kingdom. He's not born into a palace. He's born into a little stable. And here's God again at the right time, the precise time in history, when Jesus was around about 30 years old, and, uh, and he sends John into the desert, this low place, quiet place, nobody really knows about, but yet everybody comes, because this message is so incredible. Uh, he's an unlikely herald. You know that he's a uh, bit of a desert dweller. See, his father Zechariah had been promised, God had promised to his father Zechariah beforehand, that John was going to be um, used for something great in God's kingdom. And, uh, and this was actually coming about. God was faithful to his word to Zechariah. He was faithful to his word back in Isaiah six or so hundred years before. And, uh, and here it was, it was happening. And it wasn't a light, easy message. This is where we're going to come to now. The gospel message. As you think about the message that he brought, the message that he brought was for all people. Right? You notice in Mark chapter 1 that all people from all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. Uh, this message was for all people. It wasn't just for the Jews anymore. This message was a message that was for all people. And so all people needed to hear it. 
And I wonder, as you consider the gospel message, the good news message about Jesus, um, I wonder if you consider how much it's for all people. We're going to come a little bit later to how God makes distinctions between people. Um, and it's far different to, to what we probably think. Um, it, was, it was a uh, message for all people, this gospel message. It was a message of repentance. I want to spend a little bit of time here. So uh, when you think about the word repentance, and probably over my lifetime I've thought of the word repentance as a pretty scary word and a word that I don't really want to go near because uh, it seems nasty, it seems uh, direct, it seems um, really heavy-handed, but I'm not sure that's necessarily the way God intended it and, uh, and God viewed it. It is meant to be a big change. When this uh, <clears throat> repentance... Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. This was a quote that I found um, by a guy called uh, Charles Spurgeon. And it was out, a little, out of a little children's hymn. Um, so repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. So what's this idea of repentance? Clearly John's message of repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins was a strong message of turn away because what you're doing is wrong. There's a better way to live, all right? And the forgiveness of sins is meant to be good news, all right? This is, and it's a message for all people, all everywhere. It doesn't matter where you've come from, what your history is. Uh, this is a message to repent and turn away. Repentance is not so much about the sin as it is about the glorious Savior. I want to think about three uh, different ways that people repent um, or, or three different ideas that may be a bit messed up. Um, if this is going to work. Here we go. Repentance that doesn't change. I've sinned too much. I've sinned too much. I wonder if you have ever gotten to the point where uh, somebody, maybe you've heard a message like this, and uh, somebody said, come back to God. Uh, God has a message of love. God has a message of forgiveness. You've done what's wrong against God and uh, he wants you to turn back to him because in that will be a great and eternal life. Um, and you've got to the point where you go, oh man, I look back on my life and God, you would not understand how deep my sin is. Like I've sinned way too much. And, uh, and it means that you can't actually trust Jesus. Listen to this quote. The command explains itself. We'll take first of all repentance. It is quite certain that whatever the repentance here mentioned may, may be, it is a repentance perfectly consistent with faith. And therefore, we get the explanation of what repentance must be from its beginning connected with the next command, next command, believe the gospel. Then, dear friends, we may be sure that the unbelief which leads a man to think that his sin is too great for Christ to pardon it is not the repentance met here. Many who truly repent are tempted to believe that they are too great a sinners for Christ to pardon. I wonder if that's anyone sitting here today. You, you have no idea my history. You know what I've done? You know the worst things that I've done? Like that, I don't think Christ would, have, would be able to pardon that. What he did wouldn't be enough. That, however, is not part of their repentance. It's a sin, a very great and grievous sin, for it's undervaluing the merit of Christ's blood. It's a denial of the truthfulness of God's promise. It is a detracting from the grace and favor of God who sent this gospel. Such a persuasion you must labor to get rid of, for it came from Satan and not from the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Ghost never did teach a man that his sins were too great to be forgiven. 
For that would be to make God the Holy Spirit to teach a lie. If any of you have a thought of that kind this morning, be rid of it. It comes from the power of darkness and not from the Holy Spirit. And if some of you are troubled because you never haunted, you, you never were haunted by that fear, be glad instead of being troubled. He can save you. Be you as black as hell. He can save you. And it's a wicked falsehood and a high insult against the high majesty of divine love when you are tempted to believe that you are past the mercy of God. That's not repentance, but a foul sin against the infinite mercy of God. Here's the second one. Perhaps I hate the consequences of sin, but not the sin of self, but not the sin itself. Uh, maybe in this sort of example, um, there's another spurious repentance which makes the sinner dwell upon the consequences of his sin rather than upon the sin itself, and so keeps him from believing. I've known some sinners so distressed with the fears of hell and thoughts of death and of eternal judgment that to use the words of one terrible preacher, they have been shaken over the mouth of hell by their collar. Can you imagine that? He uses descriptive words. So it's like a preacher gets them, dangles, dangles them over here and say, you don't want that? Well, come and repent. Turn back to God. All right? Takes them back to earth. All right? Uh, probably not the best option. Uh, and have felt the torments of the pit before they went thither. Dear friends, this is not repentance. Many a man has felt all that has yet been lost. Look at many a dying man, tormented with remorse, who has had all its pangs and convictions, and yet has gone down to the grave without Christ and without hope. These things may come with repentance, but they are not an essential part of it. That which is called law work, in which the sinner is terrified with horrible thoughts that God's mercy has gone forever, may be permitted for God for some special purpose, but it is not repentance. In fact, it may often be devilish rather than heavenly. For as John Bunyan tells us, Diabolus doth often beat the great hell drum in the ears of men of Mansoul to prevent their hearing the sweet trumpet of the gospel, which proclaims pardon to them. I tell you, sinner, any repentance that keeps you from believing in Christ is a repentance that needs to be repented of. Any repentance that makes you think Christ will not save you goes beyond the truth and against the truth. And the sooner you're rid of it, the better. God deliver you from it, for the repentance that will save you is quite consistent with faith in Christ. Are you getting this? So repentance is not dwelling on sin. And that's probably what I've grown up with most of my life. It's like you dwell on sin, you feel really bad, you feel really terrible for what you've done, and, uh, and hopefully that'll be it. That leads to the next one. This is the final part of the quote. A false repentance which leads men to hardness of heart and despair. We have known, known some seared as with a hot iron by burning remorse. You know that feeling of remorse you get? Where you feel really bad about what you've done, but you can't move on from it? It's almost like you feel, it, it, it feels good in a sense that you're making a bit of sacrifice for your own sin, for your own wrongdoing, and that somehow that will make you better. Um, <clears throat> They have said, I've done much evil. There's no hope for me. I'll not hear the word anymore. If they hear it, it is nothing to them. Their hearts are hard as adamant. If they could once get the thought that God would forgive them, their hearts would flow in rivers of repentance. But no, they feel a kind of regret that they did wrong. But yet they go on in it all the same, feeling that there is no hope and that they may as well continue to live as if they were wont to do and get the pleasures of sin since they cannot, as they think, have the pleasures of grace. Now there is no repentance. It's a fire which hardens, and not the Lord's fire which melts. It may be a hammer, but it's a hammer used to knit the particles of your soul together, 
and not to break the heart. I'll say that again. It may be a hammer, but it's a hammer used to knit the particles of your soul together and not to smash it apart. If, dear friends, you have never been the subject of these terrors, do not desire them. Thank God if you've been brought to Jesus any, anyhow, but long not for needless horrors. Jesus saves you, not by what you feel, but by that finished work, that blood and righteousness which God accepted on your behalf. Do remember that no repentance is worth having which is not perfectly consistent with faith in Christ. An old saint on his sickbed once used this remarkable expression. Lord, sink me low as hell in repentance, but... And here is the beauty of it. Lift me high as heaven in faith. Now the repentance that sinks a man low as hell is of no use, except if there is faith also that lifts him as high as heaven. And the two are perfectly consistent, one with, one with another. A man may loathe and detest himself, and all the while he may know that Christ is able to save and has saved him. In fact, this is how true Christians live. They repent as bitterly as for sin, as if they knew they should be damned for it but they rejoice as much in Christ as if sin were nothing at all. You're getting the understanding of repentance here. Repentance is about valuing the rescuing and saving work of Jesus Christ. It's not about dwelling on the sin that you've so grievously done. And every person that stands, sits here today, uh, whether they're a child, an adult, an elderly person, knowing that there's been wrongdoing in their life. And Christ is the one who comes as the saviour. Because that wrongdoing is ultimately against God. I want, to, uh, I want to think about this message. This message of repentance. Because John comes out and says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Right? So what, what is this message of being baptized for the forgiveness of sins? I was uh, sitting and preparing this message the other night. And my brother-in-law and father-in-law were sitting at the table. And we're having a bit of a conversation. Um, and, and my brother-in-law pops up and he goes, yep, yep, I'll, I'll get the message ready for you. Here we go. Live a good life or go to hell. There you go. That'll about do it. And, uh, and that was it. And, uh, and I thought, oh, well, there's some truth to that. Uh, but the question is, what's a good life? What's good, right? And, uh, and it got me thinking about a particular story. If you've got your Bible there, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And, uh, we're going to read it together. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Can you get the urgency of this guy and the urgency of Mark in writing it? It's like Jesus is sort of wandering out and uh, this guy runs. You imagine a guy running up to Jesus, gets on his knees, say, Good teacher, what do I got to do to get eternal life? Right? Well, tell me, please. I really want to know. He's actually earnest in his, in his request. Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Now, that's a weird question, right? Because it's totally off the whole idea of eternal life, it seems. He goes, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, that pretty well cancels out everyone, right? No one is good except God alone. There's one person who's good, and that's God. Everybody else is not good. That's troublesome for this guy because he wants to know how to get to eternal life. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. He was a good person, right? He, uh, he, he'd done the right thing. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Do you get that? So this is a point of repentance, an opportunity for repentance. 
a turning away from sin, because uh, ultimately that's what eternal life is about, turning away from sin and getting the good news of an eternal life. Um, Jesus loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Notice his response here to the gospel, because this was, this was ultimately the gospel for this guy. Good news for this guy was that he, it was better for him to go and sell everything he had and come and follow Jesus. Um, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Which category do you think he fits in? He was repentant. <laughs> uh, well, he thought he was repentant because he was sorrowful about the wrong that he'd done, but he didn't actually change anything. That's what we understand anyway. We tend to want to judge people based on our standards of good. Jesus shatters this so that there are no people who are good but God. No one meets the true standard of goodness. No person here meets the, the true standard of goodness, which is according to God. However, this standard is in the heart of every person. You don't hear many people saying, I don't want to be good. There may be some, but there's not many. Because eternity is set in the heart of every single person. There's a, a desire to be good in every single person. I want you to imagine, I, I heard this analogy a while ago. I want you to imagine with me a bookcase. So imagine there's a big bookcase uh, set up here. It's beautiful timber. Um, it's nicely carved. Uh, and on this bookcase is the names of different people. All right? And uh, on the lowest level of, of the bookcase is all the worst people in our society. Because let's face it, whether we say it or we don't, we tend to cast people into different levels, right? Um, there's the low people, uh, like the cyclists who ride on the road and don't get over when they need to. Uh, then there's the politicians who are corrupt. And uh, then there's the people who make promises that, but don't keep them. Uh, so here's all the people on the lowest, maybe the low socioeconomic people. And then you work your way all the way up to the top and uh, each level has a different people in it. Up to the top people who are the really good people, they're generous, they give lots of money, um, they, they're um, work, hardworking, uh, they're just generally pretty good people. Maybe they're some of the higher class people um, in our society. We make distinctions between people horizontally, right? And if most people were to admit it and think about who they would like to see in heaven, they'd sort of split the book, bookshelf in half and go, all these people up the top, the gooder people, they're going to be the ones who we want to see in heaven. And all these scum down the bottom, they're not even going to make it, all right? And so we split this book, bookshelf horizontally in half. Um, and God makes this distinction between people uh, that's totally different. You see, what God does is he comes and he splits the bookcase vertically. Because according to God, race is... Uh, is nothing to him. There's all sorts of different races are going to be in heaven. Uh, socioeconomic status is nothing to him because there's going to be extremely poor, the poorest of the poor people. And there's going to be the upper class wealthiest of the wealthy and everyone in between. Sexual orientation is nothing to God. Come back with me to the first point about the gospel being for everyone, right? Now, think about the bookshelf. Mostly, we probably like the idea that the gospel is for nice, good people up here, right? And not the evil people down here. 
But God doesn't make that distinction. <clears throat> this man in the, in the story was up the top shelf as he had kept all the commandments. His life was good and full of wealth and riches. However, Jesus has already made the distinction of who is good and who is not. Jesus divides the bookshelf down the middle. Jesus knew that he was hoping that his wealth would save him in the end. This guy, uh, this man here, um, was thinking ultimately that the wealth he had was somehow going to uh, achieve greatly for him and uh, get him eternal life. And he was just looking for that one thing to click him over into eternal life, right? Jesus is saying, uh, your priorities are missed, all right? Doesn't mean wealth in itself is evil. Doesn't mean poor in itself is evil. But there's one thing that's even more important than that, and that is eternal life. So Jesus loved him and wanted to give him a better gift. That was the gift of eternal life in his kingdom, which cannot be earned by riches, education, or good conduct. In Romans, it says this, We were all once enemies with God, but through Jesus Christ, we can be God's friend. This is the greatest news ever. This is the greatest news ever. Greater than the news that uh, someday we may be taken over by another nation. And we want to be saved and we want to hold on to Australian values. It's not wrong. But there's a greater eternal reality that's going on in all of this. And there's a greater kingdom and a greater king. And he invites you to come. Romans 5.10 says it this way. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It doesn't matter on what shelf you apparently belong. And how long your list of goodness or badness? God saves. And he saves according to his standards. So the distinction is now not according to all the goodness or even all the badness. The distinction is, do you love Jesus or do you not love Jesus? Are you going to follow Jesus or are you not going to follow Jesus? This is the clear distinction about the gospel. There's another story of a dirty, rotten tax collector in Luke 19. Check this one out. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I'm going to stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled. They being the religious Christians, right? The religious nuts who were like, uh, they, were the, they upheld every law. Um, they did all the right things. They went to church on Sunday. Uh, they did everything excellently um, and thought that their righteousness was excellent. Their, their righteousness was amazing. And Jesus comes and baffles all that, messes them all up. And he comes and has, sits down with the, uh, the chief of sinners, right? The worst of the worst. And that was Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus, hurry, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. He came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded any, anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus did not come to seek and save the well-educated. He didn't come to seek and save the rich. He did not come to seek and save the poorly educated or the poor. 
came to seek and save the lost. And his definition of lost is when you don't love him and know him. Because that's what you were designed to do. Every person who's ever been created, that is your design. That is God's plan for you, is that you'd be friends with him and not be enemies of his. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. He does not make distinctions based on sexual orientation or age or race or socioeconomic status. Romans 3 says it this way, God treats everyone alike. He accepts people only because they have faith in Jesus Christ. All of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. But God treats us much better than we deserve. See, this is the full gospel. If all you think about is repentance, I've got to dwell on my sin and how terrible I am as a person, you're missing the point. You're missing the great news about Jesus Christ and that he's done the work to save you. God treats us, God treats you much better than you deserve. And because of Christ Jesus, he freely accepts you and sets you free from your sins. So this is the message. This is the message that John was coming to bring. But he was bringing it in preparation for the greater message. So John came and he baptized with water because um, apparently, according to tradition, that was part of cleansing you from your sins. It was an outward sign uh, that you were cleansed from sin. Jesus came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And this was a different baptism because not only did God forgive you of your sins, but then he actually comes and lives inside you to help you to live according to his standard. So you can actually meet this standard of goodness one day. And day by day you'll be being perfected until that one day when Jesus comes back or until your death. John knew that the message he was bringing was only a shadow of the greater message of the greater Savior Jesus. The man of whom he is unworthy to untie even his sandals. This was the job of a lowly servant, untying of sandals. So John knew that his job was only minuscule in comparison to the great job of Jesus Christ who would come to rescue and save from sin. Jesus is great. Jesus is greater than any perceived saviour we could conjure up, than any perceived system of saving that we could conjure up. So I wonder if you were to ask God today, God, the one thing that I want is to live forever. The one thing that I want is to live forever. What do I have to do? I wonder what Jesus would say to you today. I know that he'd look at you and I know that he'd love you and he'd invite you to come and repent and he'd invite you to come to have a new life and live forever. It's your only hope. It's my only hope in life. It's my only hope in death. And as with the flavor of Mark, what will you do with the message? This seems to be the thing. They had Jesus right there. Interestingly, through Mark, they had Jesus right there. And uh, the, the disciples were with him and they still didn't get it. <laughs> they, were, they, they still missed the fact that Jesus actually was God and that Jesus actually was their saviour. Um, they still didn't get that Jesus didn't come to wipe out the Romans. He came to love the Romans and to save them from the messed up life they were living, as, lo- as well as the Jews. And uh, it seems that the people who needed him most were uh, the needy, like uh, Zacchaeus, and demoniacs, people who were demon-possessed, they'd come and they'd be saved because they knew the desperate mess of their life. It's pretty easy for us in the West, I think, uh, to be deceived into thinking that uh, with all of our stuff and all of our comfort, that it's going to be okay. And, uh, and Jesus would say, it's pretty hard to get into the kingdom of heaven with lots of stuff. 
and with lots of credentials and with all that stuff. That doesn't mean it's wrong. Please don't hear. That's not my message this morning. It's, it's not wrong to do those things, but the most important thing is that you would have life eternal. Every person sitting here today. So I wonder if this is your first response. What are you going to do with this message? Repent, turn away, and come and follow God. Turn away from an old life and come and follow God. What a beautiful testimony we had from uh, um, Joe over here about a life that was messed up by both her own sin and the sin done against her. And now a refreshed new life that's not only going to live here, but live into eternity. That's amazing. That's amazing. Or I wonder if for you, like Sonny was saying last week, the gospel has become a bit boring. Um, we had some interesting discussion about this in our community group. Um, just the, the daily gospel. I wonder if it's daily good news for you that Jesus Christ died, that Jesus Christ rose again so that you could have life every day. So that when you mess up and you yell at your kids and you get angry really easily, um, which anyone who lives with me can attest to, at times I get frustrated and angered easily. Um, if you have cheated on a spouse, if you have uh, looked at porn, if you have not done work the way you're meant to do work, uh, all these things are daily reminders of how we need Jesus. And it's also a daily reminder of how much we need God's good message of salvation. So I want to encourage you today. Uh, maybe it's your first response. Please, I'd love to come and chat with you, uh, have a discussion about what it looks like for you to live a new life following Jesus rather than opposed to him. Um, or maybe I encourage you today to, uh, to stop and consider, contemplate, what's the daily good news for you right now today? <clears throat> Is there something you can thank God for about your salvation? Is there something you could repent for and genuinely repent and turn away and go, I'm not doing that anymore. And by your help, God, I'm going to live a new life, a different life. And, uh, and come back and save a Jesus. Let's pray. God, um, thank you for this brilliant message. I confess, I, just, I, I, need it. I need it to be even more real every day because uh, it's not real enough. Um, I forget pretty easily, to be honest, God, uh, how good this good news is. And I just, um, just want to thank you uh, for its eternal measure. That the good news is uh, that we have, uh, that I've got a new heart that will live on in eternity, that doesn't stop at death, that isn't going to be tormented in hell forever. God, I thank you that right now today you're living inside me and that that life uh, is able to exude from my life, um, the life that you bring, Jesus Christ. And I pray for uh, all who have heard this today, God, that. Um, there would be genuine repentance. There would be a genuine desire to turn and uh, to come and follow you. Turn away from sin and to start doing things just like Zacchaeus did. He started paying back money. He started to uh, live in, uh, in according to your standard in a righteous way just because he knew you loved him, Jesus. I pray that would have a transformative effect in every one of our lives. In your name, amen.